The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Doesn't it just stagger you to think of who might have come into faith today? I mean, we don't know who they are, but worldwide the gospel's being preached. And the sun ran its course 24 hours it took to get around the earth. We had the Lord's Day. We kind of get it toward the end. Um, the Orient gets it first, and the, the sun goes across and across Europe and across the Atlantic and then across America. And uh, we get it more or less last. We come in uh, toward the end, and we hear the preaching of the word, and people come to faith in Christ. And every single day it happens, doesn't it? And the church, the invisible church, is growing all the time. And that is exciting, is it not? It's one of the most exciting. It is the most exciting thing that's happening in this world. And yet it never makes the papers, does it? And we hear, oh, the invisible church grew by X number of people today. We don't know. But that is the work that God is doing. And so Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and, and hid in a large amount of flour until it permeated the entire dough. And that, I think, is many things, but it's also a little tracing out of all of human history from the time of Christ until now. The yeast is moving through, and at some point it's going to permeate the entire world. And the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Amen and amen. That's the invisible church. But now we're going to talk about the way that the word is more commonly used in the New Testament. And that is of a visible local assembly of believers. Uh, when we think of the church, we think of a group of people who meet, who covenant or who commit themselves to meet at a certain time in a certain place. And that is what we think of in terms of the visible church. Now, before we get into the scripture... I would just like to uh, give you a little bit of church history, a little bit of the sense of what Baptists have contributed in this area. I believe that Baptists, perhaps their greatest contribution in church history and to doctrine, is on the doctrine of the church. And what they believe, and what we should believe as Baptists, is that as much as possible, the visible church, namely the local assembly of uh, Christians, should be comprised of believers only. Believers only. Now, you might think, what is so unusual about that? But for the most part, Christian congregations throughout the world and throughout world history have not had that standard. They are not Baptists. And so there has been throughout history a melding or a mixing together of believers and unbelievers. Now, we could trace this back to many things, but a lot of people uh, start with the conversion, so to speak, of Constantine at the Milvian Bridge. In the year 312, he was about to fight one of his Roman rivals. He was trying to gain the upper hand in the Roman Empire, and he saw a vision of the, cro of the cross of Jesus Christ. And he was led to paint that cross on the shields of all of his soldiers, and he was told in Latin, in hoc signo vinces, in this sign you will conquer and uh, what do you think a Roman emperor thought of when he thought of conquer? He thought of go out and win the military battle, right? And we'll talk more about this uh, at the end of Romans 8. Uh, in all these things, we are more than conquerors, yet not through the short Roman sword, but through other things. But that's the way he understood it, and so he became a Christian. Now, we don't know if he was truly regenerate, but we know that from that point on was a turning point in Roman history, a turning point in the history of the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire made Christianity, what it had not been up to that point, a legal religion. But there was not freedom of religion at that point, was there? All that happened is that the official state religion became Christianity. 
And so then paganism itself was going to be crushed soon. Philip Schaff put it this way, the spirit of the Roman Empire was too absolutistic to abandon the prerogative of a supervision of public worship. Government was going to stay involved in public worship. Government was going to stay watching over it. And so it grew up after that. By the time of the reformers, there wasn't even a thought that there could be something called separation of church and state. So if you were a member, a citizen of society, you were a member of the church. And the, the key stone, the keystone to that arch was infant baptism. What they believed is that all infants, as soon as they're born in the world, should be baptized into the Christian church. And uh, I come myself from a Roman Catholic background, and uh, the ceremony is really appalling for us who are Baptists and we believe uh, in believer baptism. Uh, they say that you are at that moment born again. That, that uh, water baptism signifies your new birth into the church of Jesus Christ. And I can tell you right now, I don't remember my infant baptism. I was just a, an infant, and we didn't remember anything at all. And so what happens is you take in this huge group of people by infant baptism into the church, and only some of them are going to become born again through belief and faith in Jesus Christ. So the church is mixed. The church is mixed together. Now, some have defended this and said this is exactly what we do want. They talk about the idea of Christendom. Christendom is a kingdom of Christ. The kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of the state are one and the same. And we freely acknowledge as Baptists at the end of the world, they will be one and the same, right? But not now. And so there is this mingling and this mixing. And the reformers didn't see it as a problem. I'm talking about Luther and Calvin and Zwingli. They did not see it as a problem. Uh, separation of church and state was not even in their minds. All of them accepted infant baptism. And so there was a melding together. Now, they might defend it. Remember the parable of the wheat and the tares. You, you know that's, that parable Jesus said. Uh, the kingdom of God is like a field that a, a, a man planted with good seed, but while he was sleeping, an enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. Remember? And so when they grew up and the wheat sprouted and formed heads, so also the weeds appeared. And so there was a, a discussion between the owner of the field and the servants. So the servant said, do you want us to go and pull them up? And he said, no, because you may root up the wheat with them. Uh, leave both of them to grow together until the end of the age, and at that point there will be a separation. And so those people who uh, do not advocate what we as Baptists do, namely a, a pure or regenerate church, uh, point to that parable. The problem is it doesn't fit, because Jesus in interpreting the parable says very plainly a key phrase, the field is the world. Do you understand? It doesn't say the field is the church, the field is the world. And so we as Christians should not seek to have a mingling together of believers and unbelievers within the walls of the church. Now what I'm seeking to do tonight is to show how, especially in the book of Acts, the word church was always associated with believers only. In every case, as you go through the book of Acts, you could use the words interchangeably. All the believers were together and had all things in common. The disciples used to meet in a certain place. It was a believer's church and believers only. And so that's what we're going to seek to see. Now, as Baptists, we say, how are we going to go about this ideal? We know that it is impossible to have a perfectly pure church. By that, I mean people that are all of them born again. We know that that's not possible. There's something called the Judas principle. I'll put it this way. Did Judas look pretty good for a few years there as a believer in Jesus Christ? Sure. He would have been accepted at any church, but he was not truly born again. And so there's always going to be that problem. What, therefore, are the safeguards for regenerate church membership? Well, there are two. The Baptists have seen two. 
Regenerate church membership is upheld by two protections. One is that we reject infant baptism and we seek only to baptize those who have a creditable profession of faith in Jesus Christ, believer baptism. What is the second safeguard? Well, it's church discipline. Now, we're not going to talk about church discipline tonight, but the idea of basically we accept you into our fellowship and then we'll just walk together. We'll just live together. And as things come up and as, as things are going on, we're going to be living together as believers. And so church discipline, which was first practiced in the book of Acts by God himself in Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira, uh, church discipline is also a safeguard to regenerate church membership. We as Baptists have a great legacy, therefore, to contribute in the idea of the doctrine of the church. Now, I have an interesting article that I was reading earlier about a conversation between Luther and an Anabaptist. Uh, an Anabaptist, Caspar Schwenkveld, was talking about the church. And he said, you know, all the preaching and the Reformation that's gone on, the people of Germany are not living any more openly Christianly than they were before. There's really been no difference, no distinction, no change in their lives. And Luther readily conceded the point. He was grieved over it, as a matter of fact, but he didn't know what to do about it. And what's interesting here is he thought, Luther did, of pulling off those that were openly living as Christians and having kind of a special group within a group. He rejected the idea of regenerate church membership, but he thought maybe we could kind of have a super church within the church. But he figured that, that he couldn't get enough people. That was his fear. There wouldn't be enough to have that group within a group, and so he rejected it. The Anabaptists, however, and then some people debate the distinction between Baptists and Anabaptists, but there was a common vision of the church between English Baptists and Anabaptists. And the Anabaptists, uh, however, it says, retained the original vision of Luther and Zwingli, enlarged it, gave it body and form, and set out to achieve it in actual experience. They proceeded to organize a church composed solely of earnest Christians and actually found the people for it. There were people wanting to join a church like that. Isn't that exciting? They did not believe in any case that the size of the response should determine whether or not the truth of God should be applied, and they refused to compromise. They didn't care whether the church was large or small. They just wanted to be biblical. They wanted the church to be a pure uh, church. They preferred to make a radical break with 1,500 years of history and culture, if necessary, rather than to break with the New Testament church. Well, we are Baptists, and I got this old book Christy got for me in a bookstore called Baptist Doctrines. 1885 it was printed, and there's an article in here uh, entitled Baptist Doctrines, A Difference Between a Baptist Church and All Other Churches, written by one Thomas Henderson Pritchard, D.D., president of Wake Forest College, North Carolina, 1885. And this is what he says about the church. Third, as to the subjects for church membership, we believe that such persons only as are truly regenerated and have been scripturally baptized on a profession of faith in Christ can properly become members of a Christian church. Consequently, neither persons sprinkled instead of being baptized nor unconscious uh, infants. Unconscious means they're not conscious of what's happening to them. You know what I mean. Um, nor, re regenerated persons, nor unregenerated persons are suitable to become members of a church. To receive the unregenerate to its fellowship would destroy the distinction between the church and the world. Do you hear that? I'll read it again. To receive the ungenerate to its fellowship would destroy the distinction between the church and the world and contradict the entire spirit and genius of the gospel. 1885. 
This is the Baptist vision of the church. This is also the vision of our church as well, which I can prove easily from history, but I won't take the time right now. We'll talk about it another time. But we are a Baptist church, and that means our goal is that everyone who's a member of our church would be a believer in Jesus Christ. Now, the question is, it's not so important what Luther and Zwingli taught. It's not so important what the Anabaptist, the English Baptist taught, or even what this man in 1885 said. What matters is, as always, Romans 4.3, what does the Scripture say? And so I'd like to ask you to turn to Acts, and we're going to take a look at the idea of a regenerate church. Now first, in order to understand this, we have to understand what is the visible church. What is a church? Now we can dispense very quickly with the concept of the church as a building. We Christians know very well that the church is not a building. Now we use that way of speaking, where is the church? It's at 414 Cleveland Street, etc. And that's all right. But we know that even if this building, God forbid, were to be destroyed by some cataclysm, we still would have a church here, wouldn't we? There'd still be a church. Because the church is the people. We recognize that. But what more can we say about the visible church? Well, first, there is a set time for meeting. The church meets in a certain time and a certain place. That's what, that's what distinguishes it from the invisible church. The visible church has a meeting time and a meeting place. It says in Acts 5.12, take a look there. We'll start there. In Acts 5.12, actually we're going to start somewhere else, but we'll just, in terms of meeting place, we'll look there. Acts 5.12. And what does it say there? It says, um, the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. You see that? In Solomon's colonnade. So they had a place to meet. Now, you don't have to turn there, but, but you can look later. In Romans 16, 3 through 5, it says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. So Priscilla and Aquila had a, ch a, a house church, a church meeting at their house. Colossians 4.15 says, Give my greeting to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. So the sister Nympha had a house and she had a, a church that met in her house. So the visible church or the local church has a meeting place. It also has a meeting time. In 1 Corinthians 16.1 and 2, it says, Now about the collection for God's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. This is 1 Corinthians 16.2. On the first day of every week, each of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. So that is the meeting time. It is the first day of every week, what came to be known as the Lord's Day or Sunday. And they met, I believe, in honor of the Lord's resurrection. So the first day of every week, a group would come together at a certain definable place and they would meet. That is a local or visible church. Now, the Baptists have said that group that meets at, at Nympha's home or at Priscilla and Aquila's home should be comprised only of regenerate people, of believers. That's the desire and the goal. And they also, thirdly, have a commitment to meet. They're going to meet together. Now, we're going to start in Acts chapter 2. Um, and we have at the end of chapter 2 the effects of Peter's preaching. Peter preaches at Pentecost... And as a result of his sermon, in Acts chapter 2, at the end, beginning at verse 41, I think. Let's start at verse 40. It says, With many other words he warned them and pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Verse 41, Those who accepted his message were baptized. Do you see that? That would tend to eliminate the unconscious infant being baptized. 
Now, only those who accepted the message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. What does their number mean? Well, look back at Acts 1.15. You look at Acts 1.15. In those days, Peter stood up among the, what does it say? Believers. Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and then he spoke. So there's this group of 120 people that are meeting pre-Pentecost, waiting for the promise from on high, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. They're meeting, they're waiting, and they're praying, and they're all of one accord, and then the Holy Spirit moves on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. So there's this group of 120 uh, believers, and they're waiting for the Spirit to be poured out. And so it says in verse 41, 241, it says, those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So you can see the number of believers identified as the local church went from 120 up to 3,120 thereabouts. And so we have a believer church that's increased in number. Now continue reading in verse 42. They devoted themselves. Who's the they? Well, this group of people, the 3,000 that were added and the, their number as well. So we've got the 120 plus the 3,000, and together, collectively, they're called the church at Jerusalem. And they did what? Well, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. And then again in verse 44, look what it says. All the believers were together and had all things in common. You see how repeatedly there's this phrase of believers. These are the people who are the church. All the believers were together and had all things in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple court. So you can see they had a definite meeting time. What was their meeting time? Every day. <laughs> That included the Lord's Day, I'm sure, but also they would meet at other times as well. So every day they would meet together. Do you think they thought of it as a burden? Oh, I don't think so. This was an exciting time. They were devoting themselves to the apostles, teaching the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer. Their lives are different. They've received the indwelling Holy Spirit. Everything's changed. They can't get enough of being together in fellowship. So they would meet together every day. And they would break bread. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And then this beautiful statement, and the Lord added to their number uh, daily those who are being saved. So again, there's this sense of increasing number through evangelism, through the reaching out of the gospel. More and more people are believing the message and they're becoming part of this regenerate church, the believers in Jesus Christ. You see the same thing in Acts chapter 4. Turn there. In Acts 4, beginning at verse 23, there's the account of what happens when Peter and John are released after they have been arrested for performing a miracle. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people. Who do you think this refers to? Who are Peter and John's own people? <laughs> They're the believers, the regenerate church members. They love to be together. And so they went back after this very scary and challenging time in which they'd been threatened by the Sanhedrin threatened with imprisonment and worse if they should continue to preach. They went back to the church. You know something? I long for the day when this church is like a refuge in a haven, in a sea of persecution as we're so faithful in preaching the gospel. We come into the walls here for renewal and for strength and go back out and keep doing it. That's what it was back then. The world is where all the strife and conflict was, not within the church. 
They came into the church to, to get renewed and strengthened. And there was time of prayer and time of fellowship and time of encouragement. And you were getting re-strengthened to go back out and be like a sheep for the slaughter again the next day. That's what the church was meant to be at that time. So on their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God, and they had a wonderful prayer time. We're going to skip ahead to verse 31 through 35. After they're praying, uh, after they had finished praying, it says, uh, the place where they were meeting was shaken. By the way, that again is one of those clear indicators of the difference between the visible and the invisible church. What is the place of meeting of the invisible church? Well, there really is none. There are some that are still alive now on earth, and then there are some that are up in heaven, and their place of meeting is glorious. What a great place called Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. What a place to be. That's their place of meeting. There is no one place of meeting for the invisible church. But the visible church has places of meeting. And so it was in verse 31. The place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Keep reading. Verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. Do you see how repeatedly Luke uses this expression to speak of the church? It was a believer's church. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So this is another slice of life in that believer's church. There was a sense of community, a sense of mutual sacrifice. They would uh, give whatever they needed for a brother or sister. And so this man, uh, Joseph, who we know later as Barnabas, or at this point Barnabas, son of encouragement, he sold, sells a, a field from uh, Cyprus and, and puts it at the apostles' feet. Now, in chapter 5, we have, again, the sense of the believer's church. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young man came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, How could you agree to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the man who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young man came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear, look at verse 11, Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. So there's two categories of people in that verse, aren't there? There's the church and then everyone else who heard about what happened. The church plus all who heard about these events. Keep reading, verse 12. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers, there's that word, used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. Now look at verse 13, so interesting, in verse 14. No one else dared to join them. Why do you think that's the case? Why did no one else dare to join this group? Well, they heard what had happened to Ananias and Sapphira. 
I've done worse things than that. I don't want to be part of that group. That's a serious group. They take holiness seriously. They take sin seriously. This is what the church is. They were afraid of that. There was a fear. It says no one else dared to join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. So the people thought well of the church. The church's reputation was strong and good and healthy. But look at the next verse. Nevertheless, look at verse 14. I love it. More and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. Is that a contradiction? Of course not. The Bible never contradicts itself. There was a sense of fear and reluctance to join because of that. And yet, once people came to faith in Christ, the fear was removed because fear has to do with judgment, 1 John 5. And so they joined. Perfect love drives out fear. And they receive the spirit of adoption and they're part of the church. They're believers. More and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. Believers church. And the Lord himself is working in, in Acts 5 to keep the church pure, to keep the church holy, so that holiness matters to the church. So we have a believer's church here. Now we could continue and go through and show it, uh, but I'm going to stop here. You might want to look at the, the case of Dorcas in Acts 9 and how the believers sent for Peter. Uh, Acts 15, we see the same thing uh, as they work through the, uh, the issue of circumcision. And the believers are meeting together. The apostles and elders meet to consider that question. And then they end up writing a, a letter to all the Gentile believers. So throughout the book of Acts, the word believers stands for the church. And the church is a believer's church. It's not just, however, in the book of Acts. Take a minute and look at James chapter 2, uh, verses 1 and following. James chapter 2. Verse 1 and following says, My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? What is interesting about that to me? Well, first of all, they are believers, and second of all, they have a meeting. Do you see that? There's a time of meeting, and there's a situation in which some people come into their meeting. It's a believer's church. And we could continue to multiply that. There's another indication, too, and that's in the word churches. Not just church, but churches. There were, these churches were local assemblies. Now, if you would please turn to Revelation chapter 1. And verse 10 and following. This is the beginning of the book of Revelation. And the Apostle John writes, begin at verse 9, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the Isle of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice, like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now that's a listing of seven actual cities in Asia Minor. And there were churches in each of those cities. In Ephesus, in Smyrna, in Pergamum, in Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. This is the visible church. 
These were literal towns, and they had a church in each one. And if you were to look on a map of Asia Minor and see where these towns were, they were in a kind of a circular pattern following a postal road. There was a road that connected them, and this was the order of the postal road. Why is that important? Well, look at the statement that Jesus makes to each of the churches. In Revelation 2, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? And then he, he uh, gives a special word to the church at Ephesus. And then in verse 7, this is Revelation 2, 7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to who? To the churches. To the churches. So why is that important? Well, I believe that each individual local church was supposed to read everybody else's mail. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to all seven of the churches. Because there's a word for all the churches, uh, to all the churches. We get the same thing, uh, and you can go through and, and at the end of each statement. Uh, 2.11, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, and on through. So in each case, there's this statement, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Look at Colossians chapter 4. Paul does the same thing with his letters. We've already looked at verse 15, Colossians 4:15. Remember that. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. Right. So we already remember Nympha, and Nympha had a church in her house. But look at verse 16. After this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. So there's an exchange here of letters, apostolic letters. Paul's letter to the Colossians was to be read at the other local church. This is really, I think, the foundation of the Baptist idea of associations. We live in the Yates, or we are in the Yates Association. We are a local church, and yet we fellowship or connect with other local churches for the purpose of helping each other along and fulfilling our ministry. Now, the local church must be local uh, so that people who live in that area can easily get there and meet. We have bodies. We can only be one place at one time. But yet there is a sense of churches, and not only of one or two, but a kind of worldwide movement of churches. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he's talking about, as in all the churches of the saints, this is the way it should be. Paul was an itinerant minister, right? Everywhere he went, he would meet at the churches. And he said, this is the rule that I lay down in each one of the churches. So there's a sense of local churches just growing up, and each one of them are comprised of regenerate people, of believers. Paul says so much is he concerned about all this that he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he talks about all of his suffering, the beatings and all the trials he went through, and he said, on top of it all, I face a constant pressure of my concern for the churches. He's always worried about these churches, that they would be pure, that they would follow Christ, that they would obey the doctrines. And so he was concerned about this all the time. Now, people who hear about the idea of regenerate church membership, even when they see the evidence, which is so clear here in the book of Acts and throughout the New Testament, say that doesn't this set up a kind of an elitism, an insider-outsider mentality? I would say no and yes. No to the elitism, yes to the insider-outsider mentality. There is no elitism in being a Christian, is there? Let him who boasts do what? Boast in the Lord. What elitism can there be when we recognize that the gospel is all of grace and that the only thing that we have contributed to our 
church membership in the invisible church is the sin that Jesus Christ came to atone for. That's, our only, that's the only thing that's truly just ours, right? Everything else is a gift of God. So there's no elitism at all. Why did I say yes to the second, insider, outsider? Jesus himself used this kind of language. Look with me at Matthew 8, 11 and 12. Matthew 8, Jesus spoke of insiders and outsiders, specifically outsiders there. Matthew 8, 11 and 12, he said this, talking about the centurion. I'll begin at verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished and said to those following him, I tell you the truth, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside, there's that word, into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus said the same thing in Matthew 22:12 and following. That's the parable of the, of the wedding uh, in which there was a man who did not have wedding clothes. In Matthew 22:12, it says, Friend, the king asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the, t the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. And then in Matthew 25:30, 30, uh, Jesus said, uh, this is after the parable of the talents, and Jesus said there, take that worthless servant and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now you would say these are all pictures of judgment day. These are all pictures of the end of the, end of the world. And inside is the kingdom where there is, is salvation and outside is darkness where there is judgment. I'm saying exactly. If the church is made up of believers and you're outside the church, you're in trouble. Do you see the point? And so it's actually very important that people be inside the church. Just like in the day of Noah, it was important to be inside the ark. And so there is actually, literally, an insider-outsider mentality. Look what Jesus said in Mark chapter 4, verse 11. After Jesus had told the parable of the sower about the different kinds of soil, you remember that? Uh, his disciples came to him and said, what does it mean? It was a parable, you know, and they didn't understand what it meant. And Jesus said this. When he was alone, the twelve and the others uh, around him asked him about the parables, and he told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the what? Outside. Do you see that? It's not talking about judgment day. It's talking about right here and now. There are the insiders who get the teaching straight from Jesus Christ, and then there are those on the outside, and they get the parables. Those on the outside, to those on the outside, everything is in parables so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. So Jesus spoke of this insider and outsider. The Apostle Paul said the same thing. Look at 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, which is an absolutely vital chapter, we're going to talk about it later, but uh, just at the end, after discussing the issue of church discipline, he says in 5, 12, and 13, What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. 
clearly there's an insider-outsider mentality on Paul's part. He says, I don't have any concern or business about the outside world. That's something that God will take care of. We, however, must look after the inside, namely the church. It must be pure. It must be holy. It must be righteous. There is an insider-outsider mentality. Absolutely no elitism. None. And anyone on the outside can join by simple faith in Jesus Christ if they'll just repent and trust Christ. But there is a sense of inside and outside. Paul says the same thing. You have to look there, but in other places, Colossians 4, he says, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. 1 Thessalonians 4:11. make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that the, your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Paul's concerned about the outsiders, isn't he? He wants them to respect the gospel. He wants them to respect the church and to think of it highly. Why? So that they will be motivated to come in. They'll be motivated to come in. And so this morning we had the Lord's Supper. And I made a statement, the Lord's Supper is open for the following category of people. Those who have repented and trusted in Christ and have shown that by baptism. Now, other Baptist churches have practiced a different type of communion where if you weren't a member of the church, you couldn't even uh, receive communion there. But still, there is a sense of inside and outside. And we want those that are outside, we want them to know it, don't we? We want them to know that they haven't come to faith in Christ yet. Why? Because there's still time. The door in the ark hasn't shut yet. Do you see? There's still time for them to enter. Why be shocked on judgment day? Now's the time to be stunned and say, I'm not inside, not yet, but I want to be. Now, if the church, if the salt loses its saltiness, it's not good for that kind of thing, is it? If there's a total blending and mixing and no inside-outside, then it can't do that ministry. The Lord has upheld the church as the pillar and foundation of the truth in the world, and we must be pure. So far tonight, we've looked at the idea of the visible church, and we've seen that the Baptist contribution, I think, is just a biblical contribution. Of course, I'm a Baptist. And I believe that the local church, as much as possible, should be comprised of regenerate members. Let us pray that not only our church, but all the churches in our association and in the SBC and all of the ones that we could pray for would be composed of believers only. Let's pray now. I'll close in prayer. Father, we are thankful for the vision of the church that the scripture gives us here, that the believers were the ones that uh, joined the church that day. It was the believers that were baptized. It was the believers that used to meet in Solomon's colonnade. It was the believers that received the letter from the, the council in Jerusalem. It was the believers uh, who uh, practiced church discipline. It was the believers who prayed for Peter uh, in Acts 12 that he would be released when after James had been uh, executed by the sword. And it was the believers uh, that sent Paul and Barnabas out on their missionary journey. It was the believers that received them back uh, with joyful reports of many Gentiles who'd come to faith in Christ. Oh, Lord, I thank you for this church. I thank you for First Baptist Durham, and I pray that you would continue to do your purifying work in our individual lives and also in our collective church body. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.